0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 10, As the Fatherland Was Dying. Thanks for joining me. Today we'll be discussing Napoleon Bonaparte's family and childhood. It can be hard to find good, solid information about the early part of Napoleon's life. He was a totally obscure figure until he was in his 20s. Once Napoleon did become famous, people told all kinds of stories about his childhood and his family. This is a phenomenon you see again and again with all kinds of public figures. If you have a strong opinion about someone, it's tempting to believe some story about their origins that provides some neat, simple explanation of how they were always fated to become the person you believe them to be. For instance, supporters of Napoleon often repeated a story about him as a child, supposedly stealing a small bowl of fruit, then owning up to the offense when he saw one of his sisters was about to take the blame and be punished. Remarkably close to a story about the young George Washington chopping down a cherry tree that I'm sure a lot of American listeners are familiar with. Both stories are almost certainly fabricated and both meant to convey the same message, that even as children, these were inherently honest and empathetic people. Napoleon's enemies told similar legends about bad childhood behavior, painting him as a little tyrant who carried his impulses to bully and dominate others into adulthood. Admirers claimed he was descended from ancient Byzantine nobility. Detractors said he came from a long line of low-born bandits. Hundreds of these types of myths circulated in his lifetime, and they proliferated further in the mid-19th century, when popular culture went through a kind of Napoleon mania. Napoleon himself supposedly found all these tall tales about his origins entertaining, and would actually read these pamphlets about himself for a laugh. He often told convenient lies about himself, but he was actually pretty honest on the subject of his family background and childhood. As he put it, quote, there are genealogists who would date my family back to the great flood, and there are people who would pretend I am of plebeian birth. The truth lies somewhere between these two. The Bonapartes are a good Corsican family, little known, for we have hardly ever left the island. End quote. From what we can tell, that's pretty accurate. Carlo Bonaparte, Napoleon's father, came from a well established family. They owned property houses, orchards, pastures, and had respectable careers. Carlo attended university, as had several of his ancestors, a rare privilege in that era. But the Corsican nobility was poor and weak by the standards of the time, and the Bonapartes weren't even close to the front of the pack. They hailed from southwestern Corsica, in the lowlands, near the town of Ajaccio. Ajaccio was one of the most important of those fortified coastal outposts built by the Genoese, and it's remained one of the main urban centers of Corsica ever since, right up until today. The Bonapartes weren't one of the richest or most powerful families on the island, or even in their home region, but they were important people, looked up to as patrons by the poorer families who worked their land and tended their flocks. The line between noble and non-noble could get blurry in a poor, relatively egalitarian society like Corsica's, but the Bonapartes were definitely aristocrats. They just looked pretty small-time compared to their peers in France. Compared to the Western European average, the Bonapartes were not much better off than a prosperous peasant family, but in their own corner of a very poor island, they were people to be respected. Napoleon referred to his ancestors as minor gentry, and even with the benefit of scholarly distance, it's hard to put it better. But in Carlo's youth, the family was at a low ebb. They had their properties and their social status, but there was a cash flow problem. The war against Genoa was not good for business it was getting harder to make ends meet. So the Bonapartes did what countless noble families in similar predicaments have done throughout history, looked for a way to solve their financial problems through marriage. That was how Carlo ended up engaged to Letizia Ramolino. The Bonapartes were a family with status but no money. The Ramolinos had money but little status, a perfect match. The two were married when they were still teenagers. The circumstances of the two families and the age of the bride and groom strongly suggest this was an arranged marriage. Assuming that was the case, Carlo and Letizia got very lucky because they actually had a lot in common and shared a lot of the same dreams and goals. Both were highly intelligent, intellectual, and ambitious. Carlo was a law student, but his primary interest was in politics, not the courtroom. The Ramellinos had a long history of service to the Genoese, But both Carlo and Letizia were fervent Paulisti, as supporters of Pasquale Paoli were known in Corsica. As a man of the Enlightenment, Carlo insisted on a secular wedding. They were married in 1764, near the zenith of Paoli's rule. No one on the island knew it yet, but just as the young couple was wed, France and Genoa were concluding their secret negotiations to sell Corsica to the King of France. Shortly after his marriage, Carlo began working for Paoli but the fate of the Corsican Republic was already sealed. The young couple moved to Corte, Pauli's new capital city in the central highlands. Joseph, Napoleon's older brother, was the first of Carlo and Letizia's children to survive infancy. He was born in Corte in 1768. Joseph would be the only Bonaparte of his generation born in an independent Corsica. Less than a year later, French troops began to arrive on the island. As soon as French intentions became clear, Corsicans began to desert Paoli. Whatever they thought of the general, any resistance looked doomed. France wasn't Genoa. There was no doubt they had the money and the men to fight to the finish. A lot of people decided it was better to get in good with the new power on the island than try to delay the inevitable. But not the Bonapartes. They stayed by Paoli's side as he tried desperately to organize a defense. Supposedly, Letizia worked right alongside Carlo, even though by now she was already pregnant with their second son, Napoleon. In early 1769, Paulisti forces suffered a disastrous defeat at a bridge called the Ponte Novo. This represented the last major obstacle between the French army and Corte. After the battle, even Pauli had to admit the cause was hopeless. This is where we left off the narrative last time. After his defeat at Ponte Novo, Pauli and a small entourage boarded a ship bound for London, for exile. As Pauli's personal secretary, there was a place on that ship for Carlo Bonaparte, but he chose to stay in Corsica. This is the most discussed and debated moment in Carlo's life. If he'd chosen to leave, the lives of the Bonaparte family, and maybe the entire subsequent history of Europe, might have been different. Not only did Carlo decline to go to london A few months later, he surprised everyone by meeting with the new French governor and swearing an oath of loyalty to King Louis XV. We don't know exactly why Carlo chose to abandon Paoli. The thought of leaving his wife and infant son must have weighed on him. She was still only 19 years old and would be giving birth in a few months. The family finances were still fragile would they be able to make ends meet if the breadwinner disappeared off to England for some indeterminate amount of time? We know Carlo was an ambitious man. The most cynical reading of this decision is that he'd only stuck by Pauli to advance his own interests. Once Pauli lost and was no longer useful, Carlo switched sides. Carlo certainly had a strong impulse to pursue his own self-interest, so I wouldn't call this narrative out of character but I think it's worth noting that if he was acting purely to advance himself, he hadn't done a very good job. The really advantageous time to switch sides would have been soon after the French arrived. Indeed, a lot of Paulisti did just that. Instead of joining the defectors, Carlos spent a year fighting the French, and didn't abandon the cause until it was clearly lost. Who rewards a defector who doesn't jump ship until the very last minute? The way I see it, Carlo had ambitions. Personally, he wanted to be involved in politics, not just passively as a nobleman in his home region, but right in the thick of things, near the center of the action. London probably did not sound like the center of the action of Corsican politics, even if Pauli was there. Being part of a French Corsica might not have been Carlo's first choice, but if the only other alternative was obscurity and irrelevance in London, Carlo chose to deal with France. Political leaders of conquered nations have had to make decisions like this all throughout history, collaborate, or attempt to resist. As outside observers who have never been in those circumstances, we tend to sympathize with those who choose to resist. With the benefit of hindsight, this usually looks like the more selfless and principled act, but I think it's a harder decision than it might look from the outside. After all, the Kingdom of France wasn't Nazi Germany. They intended to include Corsicans in the administration. Their goal was to turn Corsica into a productive, secure possession of the king. That process could have had real benefits for the Corsican people, provided it was managed right. Once French rule was established beyond any doubt, what was the best way to serve the country? Collaborators might try to steer things in a beneficial direction. Meanwhile, the tiny band of exiles off in London might not have the ability to influence anything. But I think the most important factor in Carlo's decision to stay in Corsica and make his peace with the French was his family. Family was much more important in the 18th century than it is today. This was especially true in Corsican society, and even by 18th century Corsican standards, the Bonapartes were a very close-knit family and in 1769, the family's interests hung in the balance. The name Bonaparte may have carried some weight in the independent Corsican Republic, but they didn't have any status at all in the Kingdom of France. Remember, the French nobility in this era wasn't just a matter of good manners and sophistication. It was a distinct legal category, and with the French takeover, the aristocracy of Corsica was in a bit of legal limbo. Paoli had abolished feudal privilege, so, from a certain perspective, France had taken over a country without an aristocracy. But of course, there were families on the island like the Bonapartes who had a clear noble pedigree and were eager to be recognized by the king so they could have access to all of those legal privileges and tax exemptions. At the time of the takeover, the French government gave no indication as to how the issue would be resolved. I tend to think this ambiguity was deliberate, it would have been a smart way to smooth the transition. Think of it as a carrot-and-stick approach. It gave every important family on the island an incentive to keep France happy. Carlo and Letizia had big dreams for their children's futures. They envisioned their sons as major Corsican political figures or high-ranking military leaders. They envisioned their daughters marrying up into the types of families that produced such eminent men. With Paoli's egalitarian republic defeated, None of that would be possible without being recognized as nobles, and it was unlikely a family like the Bonapartes had the money or the power to make that happen without the goodwill of the new French administration. We can only speculate on what the decisive factor was, but his family's future must have weighed on him heavily as Carlo contemplated the invitation to go to London. However, he came to his decision, Carlo stayed. Napoleon would grow up the son of a politician and bureaucrat not the son of an exile. Carlo Bonaparte was either a very impressive person or simply good at reading people and making a good impression. Despite his youth and inexperience, he'd worked himself into Pauli's confidence quite quickly. Once Pauli was gone, he was just as successful in attaching himself to a new patron, Charles-Louis de Marbeuf, the new French governor of the island. Marbeuf was a military man. In fact, he led the French army that fought Pauli and conquered the island. Carlo and Letizia went from organizing the militias that opposed Marbeuf to guests at his estate in less than a year. I think it's safe to say some of Napoleon's political skills were inherited. Carlo was probably pleasantly surprised to find Marbeuf was his kind of guy, a man of letters who enjoyed reading and discussing ideas almost as much as Carlo and Letizia. Despite some of the rhetoric about the brutal French jackboot from Corsican nationalists, Marbeuf's administration was very lenient. Unlike the Genoese, he preferred to use Corsicans in his government and issued clemency to many former Paulisti. Marbeuf saw himself more as a public servant than as the viceroy of a hostile conquering power, and as a result, he was surprisingly popular. To the Bonapartes, he quickly came to be regarded as a close family friend. It probably helped that Marbeuf chose to make his headquarters in Ajaccio, Carlo and Letizia's hometown. Even Napoleon, who detested the French occupation of Corsica, held Marbeuf in high esteem. The young Napoleon would denounce the French in passionate, vehement terms, but as we'll see, in practice he related to France with a lot more nuance and ambivalence than you might think from his rhetoric. Marbeuf died in 1786. But after the revolution, his family would find themselves in the same position the Bonapartes had been in in 1769, suddenly without title or position, with the future uncertain. Once he became emperor, Napoleon returned the kindness the old governor had shown his family, and made his widow a baroness. But that's all in the future. By the summer of 1769, the Bonapartes had moved into the old family residence in Ajaccio, where, on the 15th of August, Napoleon was born. To finish out Carlo's story, he soon secured a minor role in the royal administration and, with Marbeuf's help, rose steadily through the ranks of the French government. He lobbied tirelessly to have his family recognized as aristocrats, which was finally achieved in 1771. The young Napoleon didn't see much of his father. Carlo's official duties and constant politicking meant that he was often away from home. In 1778, Carlo was selected as representative of the Corsican nobility to the royal court, which meant moving to Versailles on a semi-permanent basis. Napoleon probably knew his father more from their written correspondence than from face-to-face interaction. In 1784, Carlo's health began a rapid, severe decline, probably due to stomach cancer, a disease that is often hereditary and may have also killed Napoleon. He died in early 1785, at the age of just 38. He never could have guessed that his children would soon be emperor, kings, queens, and duchesses. Nearly twenty years later, after Napoleon crowned himself emperor and Josephine empress, he turned to Joseph, who was standing by his side. The emperor embraced his brother and whispered in Corsican, Imagine if dad could see us now. Carlo's career isn't very notable in its own right, if it hadn't been for his famous offspring, only serious academic scholars of eighteenth-century Corsica would know his name. But given his circumstances, it's nothing to sneeze at with Pauli's defeat. The Bonaparte family could easily have slipped into poverty and obscurity. Carlo didn't let that happen; he never rose above the middle ranks of French politics. But, given his origins and early death, it's amazing he achieved as much as he did. If he lived today, I imagine Carlo Bonaparte would be a small-time D.C. lobbyist trying to hustle his way to something bigger, or maybe a lawyer with a lot of connections who state senators call when they have a problem that needs to be fixed quietly. But, for all his political acumen, Carlo was hopeless when it came to business. His marriage to Letizia had come with a huge dowry, but by the time of his death, the Bonaparte family was right back where it started, in debt and cash poor. It's true that Carlo was fond of his luxuries, but his lifestyle was far from extravagant compared to his peers. Most of Letizia's dowry was lost the hard way, sunk into bad investments. Throughout Napoleon's childhood, the Bonapartes were at the very bottom rung of the French aristocracy desperately trying to keep their heads above water economically and with a brand new claim to nobility, barely better than a common bourgeois family in the eyes of their snobbish peers. Everything the family had came either directly or indirectly from Carlo's political career. Their circumstances were comfortable compared to the majority of the population, but tenuous and far from the lap of luxury. According to Letizia, even from an early age, Napoleon had little interest in childish pursuits like games and sports. When he did play, the young Napoleon was competitive. He could not stand losing. As a child, this often manifested itself negatively, cheating tantrums. But as he grew up, Napoleon learned to channel his obsession with winning into meticulous planning and preparation. As soon as he learned to read, Napoleon came to prefer books over games. He would spend hours reading in solitude, only emerging under protest to take meals with the family. He preferred history, especially Roman history. All of Europe was in the midst of a classical mania during the Enlightenment, and as we discussed last time, this was maybe stronger in Corsica than anywhere else. For the rest of his life, the example of ancient Rome would never be far from Napoleon's mind. Like many educated Corsicans, he considered the Romans his ancestors. As he put it, quote, I am of the race that founds empires, end quote. He also considered Corsican political traditions to be a holdover from the ancient Roman Republic. Modern scholars would consider that laughable, but that didn't stop Napoleon from believing it. I think you can understand the young Napoleon's fascination with history when you look at the circumstances of his upbringing. He was raised in the immediate aftermath of the greatest event of his country's history. His father had played a small part in the drama, and had gone on later in his career to visit Versailles and meet the king of France. The Bonaparte family home became a kind of meeting place for ex-Paulisti, who remained in Corsica. Napoleon grew up hearing old veterans talking about their exploits against the Genoese and the French, about the brief, glorious existence of the Republic from the men who'd built it. And, of course, Napoleon knew Marbeuf, a close family friend who was also governor of the island and general in one of Europe's most powerful armies. Napoleon's origins were relatively humble. He grew up in a place that was considered a poor backwater. But throughout his childhood, he was surrounded by an unusual number of people who had a real impact on the world. Many French aristocrats of the pre-revolutionary era had the mistaken impression that their world could not and would never change. From an early age, Napoleon knew better. Corsica had been turned upside down in his parents' lifetimes. The world of Napoleon's youth was still reeling from the violent conclusion of an incredible historical drama as he himself would later write, quote, I was born as the fatherland was dying, end quote. So he didn't view history as some distant, detached, scholarly inquiry, but as something that was constantly unfolding all around him. Young Napoleon always imagined he would one day play a key role in a story like the ones in his books. And why wouldn't he? He was raised by these people who actually had stepped up and played a role in history the last time something really important happened in Corsica. The role he imagined for himself in these fantasies was almost always military. Early works of history almost always exalted military heroism and overemphasized the importance of warfare in history and the influence of so-called great men, such as generals. So, it was probably inevitable that a boy who took his role models from pre modern history books would find himself drawn to the military. All of Napoleon's idols had led men in battle Caesar, Pericles, Alexander, and, of course, Pauli. Napoleon's military obsessions fit in perfectly with his family's expectations. As the eldest son, Joseph was expected to follow in his father's footsteps, study law, and enter politics. The armed forces was the generally accepted path for second sons of minor gentry. It might have actually been a relief for the family to see that Napoleon was actually drawn to a military profession without needing to be pushed. Napoleon was still a child when he left Corsica, but the years on the island were happy ones. He was only a year and a half younger than Joseph, and as you might expect, the two boys were very close when they weren't engaged in some intense bout of sibling rivalry. He is often described as willful, but he was well-liked by both adults and peers. Eight of Carlo and Letizia's children would survive infancy, but the next oldest after Napoleon, Lucian, was nearly six years younger. That age gap meant that Napoleon was very protective and almost paternal with his younger siblings, particularly after Carlo's death. You sometimes read that Joseph was weaker or stupider and came to be dominated by his younger brother, or was somehow seen as not up to the role of head of household. There's no real evidence for this. In fact, as we'll see in future episodes, Napoleon deferred to Joseph well into adulthood. In their early lives, the brothers played different, complementary roles, both in the family and in public life. They saw themselves as a team, and that's how others perceived them as well. Someone acquainted with the family in the 1790s would probably be shocked to learn that Napoleon is remembered by history alone, rather than as one of the famous Bonaparte brothers. In pop psychology, you often see authoritarian leaders depicted as having difficult relationships with their mothers. In Napoleon's case, this couldn't be further from the truth. He loved his mother, and she was a positive influence on his life. Napoleon described her as, quote, without equal as a mother. End quote. He would later say that he owed all his success to her, and he might not be wrong. By all accounts, Letizia loved her children dearly, but also pushed them hard. She and Carlo were both ambitious people, but Carlo was a bit of a soft touch in his home life, when he was actually around. Letizia, on the other hand, let the children know that she had high hopes and expectations for them. Napoleon's dreams of becoming one of the great men of history may have been sparked by his love of books, but they were also stoked by his mother's guidance. Even when he was emperor of half of Europe, Napoleon got upset if his mother was disappointed in him. So, if anything, Napoleon was a bit of a mama's boy but that would all change when he was just nine years old. In 1778, Carlo Bonaparte and Governor Marbeuf managed to secure a place for Napoleon at a military academy in France. These royal military academies were a relatively new institution. If you remember back in episode 6 on the pre-revolutionary armies of Europe, there was a big push in this era to make military officers more professional, to treat war more like a science. That was why the academies had been created, to train the scientific-minded officers of the future. The curriculum was heavy on mathematics, military history, engineering, and geography, the building blocks of the new military sciences the pupils would learn when they moved on to officer training school. Just like the officer corps, the military schools were only open to the nobility, and most importantly, from Carla Bonaparte's perspective, they were tuition-free. In fact, students actually got a stipend from the government for living expenses. Education was a major reason Carlo had been so interested in obtaining noble status. The Kingdom of France had lots of programs that provided free education, but they were all closed to commoners. Napoleon was accepted at the Brienne School, which is in the small town of Brienne-le-Chateau in northern France, about halfway between Paris and the modern Franco-German border. Brienne was not considered one of the best of the royal military schools, but admission into any of them was extremely competitive. We can only imagine all the glad handing and favors Carlo had to do to win a spot for his son. Napoleon's acceptance was great news for the family, but there was one problem: classes were taught in a foreign language, French. The language Napoleon spoke day to day with his friends and family was Corsican. The books he read were in standard Italian. Now, it's worth mentioning that French and Italian are quite similar, and Napoleon grew up in a town with a heavy French presence, so probably had some exposure to the language. But he was certainly not fluent. So before he could attend Brienne, Napoleon was shipped off to Autun, a town in central France with a famous boarding school run by Catholic monks. Napoleon left home at just nine years old, but at least he was with his older brother, Joseph would attend the boarding school at Autun for several years, in preparation for law school. Napoleon stayed only a few months, just long enough to receive a crash course in French, so he could understand his instructors at Brienne. Napoleon mastered French quickly. We actually have the grades he received from his instructor, and they're surprisingly good. But being able to speak fluently and being able to speak like a native are two different things. The former was easy for Napoleon, the latter not so much. He would soon come to speak and write French quite eloquently, but he never lost his Corsican accent. Think of Henry Kissinger. Whatever else you may think of him, he's perfectly comfortable expressing himself in English. He's even written books. But hearing him speak, you can instantly tell he is not a native speaker. Napoleon arrived at his new school in the spring of 1779 and instantly disliked it. After a lifetime on a Mediterranean island, he couldn't get used to the cold. He found the quarters cramped and uncomfortable. He didn't like his classmates much either. Brienne was an elite institution. You had to be a noble to attend, and you needed money or connections to gain admission. It was a snobbish place, and Napoleon was the poorest student from a strange place and spoke with a funny accent. Not only that, he was proud and combative it was easy to get a rise out of him obviously he was teased mercilessly the other students nicknamed him pionet which means straw in the nose but was intended to mock how napoleon pronounced his name through his corsican accent it was a miserable situation a nine-year-old boy hundreds of miles from home being tormented by people he regarded as the foreign occupiers of his homeland brienne was a trial for napoleon but one he would ultimately pass and emerge from stronger. He would later write, quote, As regards my thinking, it is not Corsica, but Brienne that is my native land, because it was there that I formulated my first opinions of mankind, End quote. But we'll have to leave that story for next time. Before I go, I should mention that there's a special bonus episode available as a thank you for anyone who contributes to the show. If you liked hearing about Powley last episode, I talked a lot more about him and touched on a couple other topics as well. If you want to listen, go to patreon.com/ageofnapoleon. That's patreo of ageofnapoleon If you chip in at least two dollars a month, the episode will be unlocked. Anyway, thanks for listening.